ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. For you alone are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Welcome to the beginning of Lent. Welcome to the beginning of the great fast made in preparation for the great feast. On this day, the church has laid before you an exhortation to go on a journey. You are being called tonight to take your whole self, your will, your mind, even your desires on a pilgrimage through confession and prayer, acts of mercy and fasting. A journey away from the usual pattern of this life, a journey somewhere else. And the question of the night is, where am I going? And what will I find when I get there? Why would I want to go on this path? Why would I want to engage in a season of deprivation, of fasting, and mourning? I think this must have been the response to John the Baptist. Do you remember the story? Christ Christ travels to meet this, this prophet, this wild man in the wilderness, dressed in camel's fur, eating whatever bugs happen to be lying on the ground, and repeating the same message over and over and over again. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, turn away from your sins. It's like something out of a Flannery O'Connor novel. And of course, there's a crowd that comes to see this lunatic. We, we love a spectacle, don't we? And the people that came to see John, we can divide, divide them into one of two groups. There were those that embraced the message, who listened to John, who repented and were baptized in the River Jordan. And there were those who stood to the side and wondered, why on earth would I want to do that? I want to speak tonight to the parts of you that share that question, the parts of you that are hesitant, that are unsure, what good would come of this process? Dare I even attempt the journey? We look at the prospect of fasting and repentance, and it looks to us like a specter, like some sort of monstrosity of despair and self-flagellation. Why would I want to do that? Of rules that can't be kept of an inexhaustible demand that you do better, who would want even for a moment to entertain that notion? Why not just skip ahead to the end? I can just go ahead and try harder. Why do I have to go through the season of mourning? Why the repentance? Can't I just pick myself up and put on a smile? Some of you have lived that kind of life, and it's a kind of death, isn't it? The pressure, the insatiable to man, to always look on the bright side, to think positive thoughts. We'd love to do it, but parts of me keep crying out in the other direction. There is something in me that cannot find peace through a sheer act of willpower. And so you find yourself tonight standing on the edge of the Jordan River and asking yourself, dare I go in? What will happen if I do? The Lenten season begins with the 103rd Psalm. We just read an excerpt of it. And that Psalm forms a kind of frame for understanding what the journey of Lent is all about. We only read an excerpt from it, but it begins 
and ends with the same line. The beginning of the psalm says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, praise His holy name. And then again at the end of the psalm, Praise the Lord, O my soul. And this is a strange command. Who is the speaker? If I'm talking to my soul, if I'm talking to all that's within me, who is speaking? It's me looking self-reflectively at the trajectory of my life and calling myself, exhorting myself, calling all of the wayward parts of my heart to pursue the Lord. The journey of Lent begins with an invitation to intentionally order my being, all of me, in right relationship with the Lord. But in order to do that, in order to accept this invitation, I would have to take stock of myself. I would have to take stock of my decisions. I would have to look, myself, look at myself in the mirror. Am I even cognizant of the desires that drive me? Or have I gotten so lost in my day-to-day life that I'm oblivious to the liturgies that form me? Fasting enters here as the great teacher of Lent, as a foundation of the Lenten journey. I was trying to explain to someone the other day what fasting is. Here's a way to think about it. Our lives are lived according to a kind of pattern. You wake up, you eat, you work, you eat, you work, you eat, you go to sleep. And then you wake up the next day and you do it again. You wake up, you eat, you work, you eat, you work, you eat. Some of you go back and work a little more, and then you go to sleep. And you do it again and again and again. This is your body's understanding of time. Your body doesn't know what time it is. It doesn't know if it's 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. or if it's 10 o'clock in the morning. But your body knows the pattern. It knows the waking up and the eating and the striving and the eating again and the striving again. It understands that. So what does fasting do? Fasting takes your body out of the pattern. It's like stepping outside of time. And in that moment, when you have forced your body out of its pattern of life, you learn some things about yourself. The first thing is obvious. You learn that you're hungry. You learn that you have desires. And the second thing you learn is that you have been making choices about how to satisfy those desires, that hunger, at every moment of your life. The 17th century uh, English writer Robert Burton said, man is a consuming animal. Man is a consuming animal. He creates nothing except as a means to get what he wants, which is principally a wider and fuller consumption. Fasting then becomes a call to step out of that pursuit of consumption and in doing so to become aware of it. What am I feasting upon? Where is it that I have been seeking life? In what ways have pride, lust, jealousy, rivalry, ambition become for me a kind of food, a kind of addiction? The Lenten journey begins with an invitation to take responsibility for the choices that I have been making. But the moment that we begin to go down that road, what happens? Part of us pushes back and says, wait, this is exactly what I feared it would be. I know that I've done wrong. 
I know that I've failed God, that I haven't done what he's told me to do. What's the point of staying there? Why would I voluntarily enter into this space of mourning? I know that already. What, why set aside a whole season for contemplating my own failure? I knew a young man once who illustrated this fear perfectly. Some of you know, before I moved to Georgia, I worked in Arkansas. I worked at the maximum security facility for juveniles who had committed particularly heinous crimes. And I worked with a young man, let's, let's call him Chet. I worked with Chet. When I met Chet, Chet had been convicted, not just once, but multiple times of preying upon victims. He had been convicted, he had, been, he had gone through his program, and then he had been released and he'd done it again. And so now Chet was back with me, and here was the job that the court had given him. During this time, during his incarceration, he had to learn to tell the story of what he had done without lying. And this was hard work. The rule was, the ruling from the judge was for him and for all the other cases that you had to complete that task before you could get out. And the judge said 18 months should do it, 12 to 18. I never saw a young man get out of there in less than two years. Every day we would meet and we would talk. What is it that you have done? Can you tell me the story without hiding from it? And I would sit in a room with Chet with a file over an inch thick on my desk full of court documents and witness statements, his, ar his arms tattooed with the names of his victims. And Chet would say, it wasn't me. I'm not that person anymore. That's not who I am, so I shouldn't have to go back and talk about it again. I don't want to be that person anymore. I don't want to admit the things that I've done. I think about Chet a lot because there's something in that that I resonate with. There's this fear, this, this part of me that shares this fear that if I look in the mirror at myself, not in a casual way, but in an in-depth way, if I examine myself, what will I find? An abomination looking back at me, something unlovable and unforgivable. If I admit to myself the evil that I've done, I would have to admit that a part of me has chosen to do it had chosen to satisfy my own hunger at the expense of another, and that shame, Chet was afraid, would rip him apart. How much energy are we willing to expend to avoid that confrontation? The realization that in every action which I have taken, I have chosen. On the face of it then, it looks as if Lent is an invitation to something unbearable, an invitation to self-flagellation, to self-hatred, to despair. And if that's the case, then we certainly shouldn't go on that journey. It wouldn't be worth it. But that's not the invitation of Lent. That's not what God is calling you to in Lent. No, God is doing a very different thing here. And so here is a truth which you must learn if you are to engage in Lent correctly, if you are to find in it what God is giving you. It appears at the very heart of the gospel. It appears right in the middle of our psalm that we read tonight. Christ reiterates this truth three times in our reading from Matthew. 
What is it that makes the fast endurable? What is it that gives us the strength to look at ourselves honestly and without lying? Do you know what it is? You have a father who knows you. You have a father who knows you. The psalm, it says, as a father pities his own children, so the Lord is merciful to those who fear him, for he knows whereof we are made. What does Jesus say over and over again in the Gospels? When you give, when you pray, when you fast, who sees it? Who knows you? Your Father. Notice that Jesus, he doesn't just leave it at God sees. He doesn't talk about the Lord of the covenant. He doesn't talk about the judge of all creation. These things are true, but what does Jesus drive home again and again and again in this teaching? Your Father sees it. He re-emphasizes, this is your lifeline, your relationship to the Father who knows you and loves you. You have a Father who knows you, who sees you, and who has loved you. A while back, one of my children was having a really hard day. He was fussy and irritable, and he was snippish with his brothers and sisters I couldn't figure out what was going on. He would get up from the table and just run into his bedroom and disappear for 10 minutes at a time. The door locked. What's going on here? Finally, he came, he came out. I was sitting on my chair after dinner, and he, he came and he sat in, his, in my lap, and he buried his face into my chest and began to sob. Buddy, what's going on? What had happened is my wife and I had been talking about school coming up. We'd been talking about school coming up the next year for him, and he was overwhelmed with this fear. I don't know how to read, and I don't know how to write, and all of the other kids are going to know it. Tears. And I'm looking at my boy, whom I love, a piece of my own soul walking around on legs in front of me. Buddy, I know that you don't know how to read. Buddy, you are okay. That's, that's what we're doing here, is learning how to read. I am not at all worried about the amount of time it is going to take you to get there. Christ says later in this same teaching, he says, you parents who are evil know how to good, give good gifts to your children. How much more so your Father in heaven? Your Father knows you and loves you. Brothers and sisters, do you know that your Father knows already everything that you are afraid to discover about yourself? Do you understand that there can be nothing left to fear because you are loved with a love that knows you already? What was the verdict of God's knowledge of us? What does Paul say? While we were enemies of God, God looked upon us and he knew us. And what was the response? He rescued us. He redeemed us. When we were far from God, before your heart had even dared to hope for salvation, God had come to find you. And if that's the case, then there's nothing left to fear. Indeed, the more we look, the more we become aware that we are hemmed in on every side by the love of our Father. I suggested earlier that the beginning of Lent is like standing on the edge of the Jordan River. But what happens at the Jordan River? If that's the case, if we're standing there thinking about undertaking this journey, who do we find standing in the river ahead of us? 
Christ, who has already taken upon himself the mantle of our burden. Christ, who in his baptism identifies himself with us and rescues us. Who is it that gives us the words of these psalms? Who is it that teaches us to pray, I know what you are made of, I know your frailty, I know your wickedness, and I have removed it from you as far as the east is from the west. If all of Scripture is God-breathed, then God has given us these words. Everything that you find within you, God has already known and already redeemed. Lent is an invitation, but not an invitation to self-flagellation, not an invitation to self-hatred or to mourning that has no end. Lent is an invitation to realize more deeply the love of your Father, that God has known you and has redeemed you. As you go on your Lenten journey, go with the courage of a child who knows that their Father loves them. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand.